When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor, Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy to digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Hello, and welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast. Today, we'll be discussing case number 48, a case of a 67-year-old male with syncope. So, a 67-year-old male presents with a complaint of syncope after carrying a bag of groceries up a flight of stairs. He has a 20-year history of hypertension and an 80-pack-year smoking history. He had a heart attack seven years ago and has been medically managed with enalapril and simvastatin daily. First question asks, what are the considerations for the differential diagnosis of this patient's presenting symptom? So, in a patient presenting with syncope, one can divide up the etiology into broad categories, of which many are cardiac and neurologic in origin. However, other causes include pulmonary, vascular, and even psychiatric. The case then elaborates by saying that on physical examination, The patient's blood pressure is 160 over 96 millimeters of mercury, pulse rate is 84 beats per minute, respiration rate is 14 breaths per minute, and oxygen saturation is 100% on room air. There are no orthostatic changes in blood pressure or pulse. The patient is alert and without pallor. Lungs are clear to auscultation bilaterally. A cardiac exam reveals a non-displaced apical impulse. There is a crescendo-decrescendo systolic murmur heard best in the aortic area with radiation to the carotids. The intensity of the murmur decreases with the Valsalva maneuver. There is no lower extremity edema or cyanosis, and capillary refill is less than two seconds. The neurologic exam is grossly normal with no motor or sensory deficits. So, given this physical exam, what do you think is the most likely cause of this patient's syncope? So, the presence of a murmur on cardiac exam suggests a cardiac etiology, particularly a valvular disorder. In addition to the patient's age, the description and location of the murmur are most consistent with aortic stenosis. A definitive diagnosis is established with echocardiogram. Uh, Clinical pearl here, mainly for step two and three is that aortic sclerosis is thickening of the valve, causing turbulent flow but no stenosis. The murmur may be similar to that of aortic stenosis, but without radiation to the carotids or supraclavicular area. Similarly, a flow murmur 
in a hyperdynamic state, such as thyrotoxicosis, infection, or anemia, can be a systolic murmur similar to aortic stenosis, but without the characteristic crescendo-decrescendo pattern or radiation. So what are the physical exam findings of aortic stenosis? Aortic stenosis classically has a systolic ejection murmur with a crescendo-decrescendo quality heard best in the aortic area, which is the right second intercostal space, with radiation to the carotids. When severe, there is a characteristic delay and decrease in the intensity of the carotid pulse, which is also referred to as pulsus tardis et parvus. Patients may also have an audible S4 and laterally displaced point of maximal cardiac impulse because they develop concentric left ventricular hypertrophy as a compensatory response by the left ventricle to pump blood across a stenotic aortic valve to maintain systemic perfusion pressures. The patient may likewise have the same physical findings of congestive heart failure, such as elevated jugular venous distension by basal or rails on pulmonary auscultation and or lower extremity pitting edema in advanced cases of aortic stenosis. A basic science pearl here for step one is that other auscultatory findings for aortic stenosis include a soft or absent S2, and a clinical pearl, mainly for step two and three, is that the grade of the murmur does not reflect the severity of the stenosis. However, severe aortic stenosis may present with a delayed S2 or reversed split S2, where the P2 sound precedes the A2 sound. The case then asks what maneuvers are performed to accentuate or diminish the murmur associated with aortic stenosis, and why do they have that effect? So the typical maneuvers that are performed and that affect the murmurs of valvular disorders are the Valsalva maneuver, passive leg raise, and hand grip. The Valsalva maneuver is performed by asking the patient to bear down, which causes an increase in intrathoracic pressure and thus a decrease in venous return. The passive leg raise is performed by the examiner on the patient in the supine position, and this results in an increase in venous return. The hand grip is performed by the patient, and this causes an increase in afterload. During a Valsalva maneuver, as the venous return decreases, the gradient across the stenotic aortic valve also decreases, and thus the magnitude of the murmur decreases as well. The opposite effect on the aortic stenosis murmur is achieved when a passive leg raise is performed, which increases the venous return to the heart and increases the pressure gradient across the stenotic aortic valve. Finally, as mentioned above, the hand grip leads to an increase in afterload, which causes a decrease in the pressure gradient across the stenosed aortic valve, and this results in a diminishment of murmur intensity. A clinical pearl has been added here. Uh, mainly relating to step two and three, where it talks about hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy, also known as idiopathic hypertrophic subaortic stenosis, can present with the same type of murmur as aortic stenosis. However, the Valsalva maneuver and passive leg raising have the opposite effect on the murmur, whereas performing the hand grip has the same effect on the murmur for both aortic stenosis and hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy. These maneuvers can clinically distinguish a murmur due to subaortic stenosis from that due to stenosis of the aortic valve. Because the stenosis in hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy is subaortic, a decrease in venous return due to Valsalva maneuver narrows the left ventricular outflow tract by the hypertrophied intraventricular muscle, 
and accentuates the murmur. An increase in venous return from a passive leg raise opens up the left ventricular outflow tract and diminishes the murmur. The effect of an increase in afterload as a result of the hand grip maneuver has the same effect on the pressure gradient and murmur in both types of stenoses because this effect is downstream from both stenoses. Uh, the case continues with the patient presents with syncope. What are other presenting symptoms of aortic stenosis and what are their implications on prognosis? So as with any valvular disorder, patients can present with shortness of breath or dyspnea on exertion and many patients may be asymptomatic until stenosis of the aortic valve progresses to a severity that poses a significant obstruction to left ventricular outflow. If aortic stenosis is discovered incidentally before symptoms develop, patients have a survival similar to that of the general population. However, if the patients present with angina, syncope, or heart failure, these patients have a mean survival of less than five years, three years, or one to two years, respectively, if no valvular replacement is undertaken. ASH or ASH is a helpful mnemonic to remember this. Why do symptoms develop in aortic stenosis? Well, angina occurs when oxygen demand is greater than the supply. Aortic stenosis causes angina because there is an increase in oxygen demand by the hypertrophied left ventricle that must work harder to generate forward blood flow through a stenotic aortic valve. Furthermore, this demand is not met by diminished blood flow through the coronary arteries due to lower pressures generated beyond a stenosed aortic valve. Because blood pressures beyond a stenotic valve are lower, cerebral perfusion may be compromised and cause syncope. This occurs especially during physical exertion because exercise causes a drop in total peripheral resistance and the stenotic aortic valve limits the ability of the heart to compensate with an increase in cardiac output. Both systolic and diastolic heart failure can ensue after long-standing aortic stenosis. As aortic stenosis progresses, the left ventricle is not able to generate an adequate ejection fraction due to worsening outlet obstruction, and the hypertrophied left ventricle is also less capable of generating a contractile force sufficient to move blood forward. In addition to decreasing the chamber size of the left ventricle, the hypertrophied walls of the left ventricle become stiff and less compliant. These physical features lead to poor left ventricular filling and hence diastolic dysfunction. Here, a basic science pearl is shared. It says another mechanism for syncope in patients with aortic stenosis is increased baroreceptor stimulation due to pressure overload. This response causes reflex vasodilation and bradycardia. So what causes aortic stenosis and what are the risk factors? Aortic stenosis usually develops in the seventh decade of life as a result of calcification and inflammation of the endothelial surface of an otherwise normal aortic valve in a similar manner to how plaques form in the walls of coronary arteries of patients who have coronary artery disease. Therefore, the risk factors of advanced age, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and tobacco use are the same for both diseases. Furthermore, patients who develop aortic stenosis usually have a concomitant coronary artery disease. Bicuspid aortic valves are the most common congenital cardiac abnormality and occur in approximately 1% of the population. They are often associated with coarctation of the aorta. About 50% of cases of coarctation of the aorta have a bicuspid aortic valve and uh, also associated with Turner syndrome. Bicuspid aortic valves by themselves 
do not compromise hemodynamic flow, but they are predisposed to earlier degeneration and calcification. Aortic stenosis usually develops in patients with bicuspid aortic valves about 20 years earlier than would occur in patients with otherwise normal tricuspid aortic valves. Rheumatic heart disease as a late complication of streptococcal pharyngitis due to group A beta-hemolytic streptococcal infection, such as from S. pyogenes, is a rare cause of aortic stenosis. How is aortic stenosis confirmed? The confirmatory diagnostic test of choice is echocardiography. The echocardiogram can visualize the valves and measure the aortic valve area directly, as well as determine the pressure gradient across the valve by measurement of Doppler flow. This is used in grading the severity of the disease. Other tests that have a low sensitivity and specificity for determining whether a patient has aortic stenosis are electrocardiography and chest radiograph or chest x-ray. The electrocardiogram, ECG, may show voltage criteria for left ventricular hypertrophy and possibly demonstrate left atrial enlargement. The chest x-ray might show calcifications on the aortic valve, atherosclerotic changes of the aortic arch and aortic valve annulus, or an enlarged cardiac silhouette. Despite these nonspecific findings on ECG or chest x-ray, none of these findings actually demonstrate aortic stenosis whereas the echocardiogram has the combination of both high sensitivity and specificity for detecting this disorder. Nevertheless, after an echocardiogram detects aortic stenosis, patients would also undergo cardiac catheterization before any intervention is undertaken because coronary artery disease commonly coexists. It is important to note that the exercise stress testing is relatively contraindicated with patients with symptomatic severe aortic stenosis. However, a low-level stress test can be done in certain situations. Patients with severe aortic stenosis can sometimes report complete absence of symptoms. Often, these patients have altered their activity levels to a degree which might mask clinical symptoms. When they're placed on a treadmill, they often manifest classic symptoms of angina or dyspnea with evidence of ischemic EKG changes. In addition, there is a small subset of patients in whom the resting echocardiographic gradients are not consistent with two-dimensional imaging and clinical symptoms. When these images are repeated after a low dose of dibutamine infusion, the pressure gradients often unmask true severe aortic stenosis. So the case goes on to give more information to say the patient's ECG shows Q waves consistent with his old myocardial infarction It also shows left ventricular hypertrophy and normal sinus rhythm. The echocardiogram reveals moderate concentric hypertrophy of the left ventricle, ejection fraction of 55%, and severe aortic stenosis. Chest x-ray reveals atherosclerotic changes of the aorta. So our diagnosis now is aortic stenosis. What is the treatment for aortic stenosis? Aortic valve replacement is the only definitive treatment for aortic stenosis and is especially indicated for symptomatic individuals. In patients with high or prohibitive operative risk, recent advances in non-surgical techniques have made percutaneous transcatheter aortic valve intervention, also known as TABI, a feasible alternative option with similar success rates as surgical intervention without the need for open-heart surgery. The choice of whether to pursue an open surgical procedure or minimally invasive transcatheter procedure depends on a few things, 
including surgical risk, life expectancy, and age. Generally, TAVI is preferred for individuals with high or prohibitive surgical risk, greater than one-year life expectancy with acceptable quality of life, and valve anatomy favorable to the procedure. TAVI is also acceptable in severe AS patients without a high surgical risk who prefer to have a bioprosthetic valve and are of age greater than 65 with greater than one-year life expectancy and acceptable quality of life following the procedure. The decision for which route of intervention is most appropriate must be conducted as a shared decision-making effort with a patient-centered discussion involving the patient, cardiothoracic surgeons, interventional cardiologists, and structural heart specialists, advanced cardiac imaging experts, and general cardiologists, also known as components of a heart valve team. Historically, before TAVI was available, patients who were poor surgical candidates for open-heart surgery had a balloon aortic valvotomy performed, which would resolve the aortic stenosis but cause aortic insufficiency, and the patient would still be at high risk for restenosis. Moreover, the procedure would only palliate symptoms and not improve survival. A clinical pearl here at this point, mainly for step two and three, states that whereas medical therapy does not delay the need for surgery, patients should be treated for risk factors for aortic stenosis. Hypertension should be treated, but with monitoring because hypotension can develop due to preload dependence. For this reason, venodilators should be used with caution. The case then goes on to add the information that the patient is referred to cardiology and cardiothoracic surgery for consideration of aortic valve replacement as indicated by his symptoms and the severity of his aortic stenosis. He undergoes surgical aortic valve replacement and is discharged home five days postoperatively without any complication. That brings us to the end of the case and to the Beyond the Pearls section. On physical exam, the presence of an opening snap with the murmur of aortic stenosis may represent a bicuspid valve. The Galavardin phenomenon is a separation of the auscultatory sounds heard during aortic stenosis. The musical component can be heard at the apex and the harsh component at the right upper sternal border. This can be misinterpreted as the murmur of mitral insufficiency. This could be differentiated by the lack of radiation to the axilla with aortic stenosis. Rarely, presenting features of aortic stenosis can be syncope when extension of the calcification causes atrioventricular block or stroke from embolization of a calcified valve. An intraaortic balloon pump can support hemodynamics in patients with severe aortic stenosis and severe left ventricular dysfunction manifesting as cardiogenic shock. However, an intraaortic balloon pump is contraindicated in patients with aortic insufficiency as it can worsen this condition. Class 1 indications for aortic valve replacement include severe aortic stenosis with symptoms by history, decreased ejection fraction of less than 50%, or when undergoing other cardiac surgery, such as coronary artery bypass grafting. According to revised guidelines from the American Heart Association in 2020, no endocarditis prophylaxis is indicated for patients with aortic stenosis, including those patients with a bicuspid aortic valve or rheumatic valve disease. These recent guidelines do not recommend antibiotic prophylaxis for patients with native valvular lesions. However, if the patient undergoes aortic valve replacement, 
then the presence of a prosthetic cardiac valve is an indication for endocarditis prophylaxis. But such prophylaxis is only indicated for dental procedures involving manipulation of gingival tissue or the periapical region of teeth or perforation of the oral mucosa. Prophylaxis is not necessary for genitourinary or gastrointestinal procedures with or without biopsies. For adult patients requiring oral endocarditis prophylaxis, acceptable regimens include amoxicillin or clindamycin, erythromycin, or cephalexin in a penicillin allergic patient. 3-hydroxy-3-methyl-glutero-CoA, also known as HMG-CoA reductase inhibitors, are used in the prevention of progression of calcific aortic stenosis. All right, so that brings us to the end of the case today. I hope that you all enjoyed it, and thank you so much for joining us. My name has been Ravi Rao, and this case was edited in part by Dr. Prabhdeep Sethi. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.